Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program covering a wide variety of topics of interest to people with vision loss. I'm Nancy Goodman Torpy. And I'm Pete Torpy. Well, as some of our listeners who know us might surmise, Nancy and I really enjoy science museums and science exhibits. And this week we got to see a very special audio and tactile exhibit at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. Come with us as we take a tour of a number of interactive exhibits with Becca Hathaway, Manager of Teaching and Learning at the Center. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip comes from Becca Hathaway. I think it's really important that people make sure that they're checking the sources of information they're getting about science. Uh, There's a lot of really good information out there, but sometimes people have an agenda and they're spreading information that's not correct. So checking your sources to make sure it comes from a reputable place, making sure that it's coming from scientists that do peer-reviewed research, um, making sure that they don't have an ulterior motive with the information they're sharing is a really good idea. And I assume everything in your exhibits and on the tour has been vetted. Yes, everything we have has been vetted. We have pretty extensive review processes here where we have content reviews all the way down to copy editing and proofing to make sure we don't have typos. But we're always asking scientists to review it, all of the information before we're sharing it out. And what a great tip, especially for these days of hoaxes, false claims, and misinformation. Be aware of your sources and check them out. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Let's start by meeting Becca and learning about NCAR, the organization, before we get into talking about their displays and exhibits that are open to the public in the following segment of this show. My name is Becca Hathaway, and I'm the manager of teaching and learning in the UCAR Center for Science Education. Now, we're sitting here at NCAR, and you just said you work for UCAR. What's the distinction? UCAR stands for the University Corporation for Atmospheric Research, and UCAR is the umbrella organization that operates NCAR, which is the National Center for Atmospheric Research. And that's a federally funded research and development center with scientists who study the atmosphere, weather, and climate. And UCAR also manages a consortium of member universities who do similar research. And we are in Boulder, Colorado. Yes, we are in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. We're at the NCAR Mesa Lab, which is up against the foothills of the mountains, where we have a visitor center and some trail systems out back. So give us an idea of what types of research go on here. So our scientists study, um, generally speaking, they study atmospheric-related things. So it's weather, climate, solar physics, air quality are like the main topics. And... um, To get more granular into that, um, scientists who study air quality sometimes are looking at wildfires, they're looking at chemical composition of the atmosphere and particulate matter. Um, People that study weather, we have people that are studying convection and storm formation or um, things that have to do with hurricanes that contribute towards forecasting and understanding of those types of storm systems. Uh, For climate change, we have scientists who study both Um, models and making forecasts of future climate change, as well as um, looking at impacts and how we can um, plan for different things like that. So when you say you study the weather and weather forecasting, 
you don't actually do the forecasting here. You create better tools and models for the people who do do the forecasting, right? Yes, that is correct. The National Weather Service um, is the main group that does forecasting in our country. Um, Our scientists have tools. And for example, with wind, where our scientists help develop a tool to understand wind patterns and to contribute to a forecast that that energy companies then can use to decide when to turn on and off their wind turbines. So we're not telling them when there's going to be wind, but the research behind how wind works with landforms and weather patterns and other things like that is is what our scientists have contributed to that type of work. And how big of an organization are we talking about to do all this work? We have approximately 1,400 employees, although I've heard recently that number might be a little bit larger. So you mentioned you're in the education department, and most people would think of that as school groups or teaching, but I've learned that museums and exhibits often make that a much more expansive role. What does the education department do here? So our mission is to engage and inspire people to learn about the Earth system and particularly about the topics that are studied at NCAR, and we do that through our exhibits. Our educators give tours. We do have school field trip groups that come here, but we really do educate everybody that's in, you know, all populations. And so we give tours to young children, to elder hostel groups, to politicians and dignitaries. Um, We do teacher workshops, and we also have online content and activities that we develop for teachers and families to do at their own facilities. In addition to some of the demographics that you mentioned, professions, ages, whatever, you also have a commitment to make it accessible to people with all different abilities. Can you talk about that, too? Yeah, we've always had a commitment to make sure that we're making things as accessible as possible to people with different abilities. And to some extent, we're providing some of those opportunities already. But we're also really interested in increasing the accessibility and providing more and better offerings. So our team is actually embarking on a planning process to develop an action plan for the different things that we would like to add, features to our exhibits, or different types of programming for different audiences. So we're working on that plan that will be a multi-year thing that we'll start implementing soon, and we'll just continue to add different features over time. Support for Eyes on Success is made possible in part by our corporate partners. Find out more about partnership opportunities by sending an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. This week's focus topic is the public displays and exhibits at the National Center for Atmospheric Research and what they've done to make them accessible. So you folks host a public tour that we've been on, and it's fascinating, and that's what we're here to talk to you about. Can you describe the tour? Yeah, so we have this public visitor center, and so during the tour... One of our tour guides will take groups of people throughout the visitor space, which includes hands-on science exhibits. We have approximately 6,000 square feet of exhibit space. And during the tour, people will learn about different content areas that the research that's happening here. Um, The tour guide will answer questions people have about how the organization works and how the research happens, as well as answering science content questions if people want to learn more about weather or climate or other topics like that. So the other thing we'd like to know about here is you've gone to some lengths to make these tours accessible to many different types of people with different 
disabilities or different concerns. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah. So as I mentioned, our exhibits have some hands-on interactive elements to them. And some of those elements make it so that the exhibit is accessible to people with different challenges. And so, for example, we have things that can be touched. So we have a sea of clouds, which is kind of a fog machine with a basin that creates mist and looks like clouds. And people can wave their hands in there and feel the moisture and it feels cooler. So they can experience that type of thing that is either visual or touch. Um, We have a tour app that people can download. And in that tour app, we have audio content that people can listen to um, that tells them more about our exhibits. Also for that, we have um, a transcript inside the app. So people who are deaf or hard of hearing can also read that information that's in the tour app. We have other things that are touchable, like a model of a hailstone. We have touch screens that have videos and sound and some music. We have a new exhibit called Sounding Climate, where we have a climate model and um, put that to music so that people can listen to instruments playing out different climate change projections. There are different instruments that play out precipitation, temperature, and sea ice change. You run the public tour only at certain times, and if someone isn't available at that time, they can use the app. And they can come in and see the exhibits and listen to the app describe what a tour guide might. That's one of the main reasons why we developed the app is that we have the tours. It's actually three times a week. So um, we knew that it was frustrating for people who couldn't make it here when there was a tour or um, maybe they just wanted to get more information and spend more time than the one-hour tour. So we wanted to make it accessible to everybody. It's free to download online onto your own device. We also have iPads where the app is loaded, and people can borrow those and use them if they don't have a device. And I've downloaded and tried the app. It is very accessible using VoiceOver. It's great to get that feedback. I'm glad to hear that. We welcome the feedback because we're really learning and trying to improve our offerings. And so it's great to hear both things that are working well, as well as suggestions for things that we could offer that are either different or things that we don't have. So feedback is great. Well, we just arrived at the first exhibit. What's this one? So this exhibit called Sounding Climate, we're looking at what um, changes in temperature, precipitation, and sea ice would both look like with a digital visualization as well as sound like with musical instruments playing about those changes. And it's pretty cool. We've been excited to get great feedback from people that people who can't see are really excited to be able to listen to the music and experience the changes. And people who can see can also look at this data visualization that's quite beautiful, showing um, patterns and changes across the earth. So I can go ahead and Um, Take a look at that if you want me to start with one of the interactives. Please. I'm going to pick a spot. Right now it seems to be picked up there, but when we get up in the Arctic, we'll get to see the sea ice. We'll get to see and hear the sea ice change. Okay. We've got two different ways to do this. So right now we're going to do where we see all the different variables together. So we're seeing both precipitation, temperature, and sea ice, as well as model runs that show it with human influence on climate as well as human and natural influences on climate. So it's showing two different ways that models can run data for us. And we're starting at the year 1920, and we're going to go out into the future to the year 2100. So we're going to get started, and I'm going to press play here. There's a graph that shows the data. with 2000. 
2050. 2100. So there's also a way where we can play it and hear one isolate each different variable, and then we can play it again together so that you can get to know those instruments. And I see on the touch screen that there are four different speeds you can go at. Right. We could play it another time a lot slower, too. So for this one, we're looking at precipitation first. And um, I'm going to make it so it starts. Sorry, I'm bringing it backwards in time to start at 1920. And we've got this one at a slower speed. I don't think I've ever listened to it at this speed. 2,050. 2,100. What did you hear? Well, what I was hearing was an increase in pitch, and I presume that's because there's more rain every year as we progress in time? Correct. The precipitation is, is changing and increasing, so it's got, getting wetter. It's showing here that it was getting 90% wetter. And it's also an interesting pulsating sound. I suppose that's the seasonal variation of the moisture? Correct. In addition, on the graph here, for all of the different variables, the graph will show um, CO2 levels for those years, too. So people can see the data of the variable for this one as precipitation and then also watch what is happening with CO2. So if you can't see that, it's also in a box over on the side here. And so a companion could read to people and you can see what the CO2 is in parts per million as it steps through time. So that was one variable. That was the rain. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are interested in the temperatures. There's been a lot of discussion about how the temperatures are varying through the years on Earth. Yeah, let's do temperature. And I'm going to change the tempo as well. I think we'll go to Allegro here, which is the third out of four speeds. We're going to keep our location still in the Arctic here. Uh, it's an interesting place where there's a lot of change going on. So let's listen to that. Two thousand. Twenty fifty. 2100. And when the frequency is too high anymore, you're really in trouble. <laughs> it's true. It's a little bit distressing the way that the noise sounds. Um, I didn't mention this, but for precipitation, it's a marimba. And for temperature, we were just listening to a clarinet. When we do sea ice, it's a violin. So I'm curious for so far, each of precipitation and temperature, you've got actually four graphs running along simultaneously, so we were hearing chords? What you're hearing is these different model simulations. Ah. So there are six different model simulations that are getting merged together with this sound. And as our listeners could probably hear, that these chords, there was some variation from model to model, but 
overall, they all followed the same general pattern. Yeah, that's a good interpretation of what you were hearing. Should we do sea ice? Sure. Here we go. And again, the frequency getting lower here indicates that the sea ice is decreasing, decreasing over time. Correct. So this one, when you see and hear it, it's an inverse of the relationship between the sound and the data from the other two variables, where for those, they were both increasing, and for this one, it's decreasing. But we were also hearing another note that kept increasing, and that was representing the carbon dioxide content. Correct. So now that we know each of the individual instruments, maybe we can hear the whole symphony over again. Let's do that. And now we'll hit play. 1950. 2000. 2050. 2100. Nice. <laughs> yeah, nice until you realize that as of 2050, they're predicting no sea ice. It's distressing, some of this data. Um, I think it's important because this is what's happening right now on our planet. And so this is probably a way to reach some people who are interested in learning in these kinds of ways rather than reading about something. And so I think it might be a way to get the message through to some folks that this is something that's happening it's happening right now, and it's something that we need to be addressing. And people can play around with the map at different locations on the planet. They can see what it's like where they're from and um, understand what might be happening and what might be changing in all those locations. Great. Well, thank you for that demonstration. So you said there were other exhibits you wanted to demonstrate? Yes. Let's go. Let's, Let's go. Cross over here. Mm-hmm. So we're standing in the climate exhibit now, and the section we're in is about the evidence and how we know what we know about what's happening with our climate. So in this section, we talk about past records of climate that give us data, current day observations that we can make, as well as models that we can project information into the future. So we're standing right in front of a tree ring, which is one example that we're showing of um, how we can look at past data. So it's something that's mounted on the wall and that you can touch. So if you want to reach out, you can touch it. Okay. And you can feel the edges of the tree bark and the smooth kind of cut surface. Yes. Yes. So this tree ring is showing all the different years that this tree was alive. And wider and narrower rings indicate more or less precipitation during that year. So that's one thing that scientists can use. Things like tree rings. We have a model of an ice core over to the side. There are other past climate records that scientists use, and these are some of them. So you can check your model against some of the historical data and then use the model to extrapolate into the future. Exactly. Becca, I see you have a lot of touchscreen interactive displays. What do they do? For people who like um, digital content, we have games, we have videos, um, we have some online interactives. 
So one of the features of the touchscreen where we're standing is um, it's called Climate Stories, and we've collected stories from people around the country who are experiencing different impacts of climate change. And so we have interviews where people are talking about how things are changing where they live. Sometimes they also talk about what they're doing about it to help address these challenges. Let's play one of these stories. I'd like to hear that. This is from Central California. The Great Central Valley is a great big food producer that's being severely impacted by climate change. Less water, more insect vectors, increased emissions, increased populations are contributing to the issues of climate change and, and making the situations worse. I've noticed, and it has been documented, that there is significantly less snowpack in the Sierra Nevada. This is important because this is the water bank for the state of California. What's happening is the temperature is going up, what snow does come down melts immediately, and we get one big flood event, and then the rest of the summer we're without water. The communities down here, such as Porterville, on the east side of town, there's 300 homes that haven't had water at all. We're seeing in the farmlands, more and more water-intensive crops being turned under. We're seeing a displacement and possible extinction of over 500 species of plants in the Sierra. We want to encourage people to do things in their home watershed. Not only reduce water by utilizing gray water, but by collecting their own water from cisterns and the old-school, old-fashioned way of catching water off food and saving it throughout the year. The other thing that Wild Places is doing is trying to connect the people in the city who don't have water to understand that the upper watershed, a place they may never have been, is essential to the water that they have in their homes. Well, that was interesting. What I'm looking forward to now, though, is you told me at the beginning that I could stick my hand in a cloud that you were making with a cloud machine. Let's go see that. So here we're standing at the Sea of Clouds, and um, it's a big basin that is essentially a fog machine. And so visitors can just wave your hand inside it and experience what you're feeling, whether you feel any moisture or any temperature change. Let's do that. Let's do it. People like to get on one side or the other of it and push all of the uh, moisture to <laughs> their friends. Well, it gets um, very cool as you rise up and you can feel the condensation happening as my hand gets all wet. <laughs> I guess I'm in a cloud. This is really cool. It sounds so simple, but it's just so inviting to stick your hand into this sea of cloud. It's right inside our front entrance, too, and it's the first thing that most people run to when they come inside. It's something that is pretty memorable. When we were setting up this interview, you mentioned your weather trail. What's that? We have an interpretive weather trail that's out behind our building, and I think it's about six-tenths of a mile trail, and on that trail, we have different um, interpretive signs that talk about features of weather that might be something you'd experience when you're at that place on the trail, or a place where there's a viewpoint where you can see things like air pollution in Denver, or um, a good place where you might be likely to feel a breeze. We'll talk about wind. And so um, people really enjoy using this trail to learn a little bit more about weather, and then this connects to the network of trails that are managed by Boulder Parks and Open Space. And in addition to all of the world-class research going on inside the building and the fascinating exhibits they have for the general public, 
the outside of the building is simply gorgeous, and if possible, the foothills and flat irons behind it are even more gorgeous. Well worth a visit on many counts. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Now for this week's final item, how to learn more about the National Center for Atmospheric Research, or NCAR, and the University Corporation for Atmospheric Research, or UCAR, and how to contact them for more information or to learn about going on a tour. So if people want to learn more about NCAR, some of the resources here, where would you direct them? So in general, to learn about the organization, our website is ucar.edu, which is ucar.edu, and the education group, which includes information for visiting the NCAR Mesa Lab, as well as downloading or um, viewing any of our educational resources that we have online, is sciedu and Syed is spelled S-C-I-E-D. And can people find your app with the guided tours and more information at that site also? Yes, there are links to the app on that site, and it's available on Google Play and Apple iTunes. We both found it very easily and have been playing around with it, and it's fascinating. If you can't make it to Boulder, you can make it to the app. I also mentioned that we're about to release um, some Spanish translated material on the app as well. So there will be Spanish audio and Spanish um, written language. Do you have a social media presence? We do. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So we invite people to follow us and um, engage with us that way. We also have um, local events or we promote when we're in different parts of the country at public events or conferences. So we'd love to have people um, meet up with us either on social media or join us at one of our events. And do they look for NCAR or UCAR? To try to make it accessible for any of those search terms, what they look for is NCAR, UCAR, science education. And is there an email address or a phone number where people can ask more questions? Yes, we have a general email address that is syed at ucar.edu, and we um, have a couple of people that monitor this address and send out questions to the right person to respond. If people are planning a visit to NCAR, where would you suggest they go for specific information on visiting the lab? We have a really um, in-depth section on our website that has information about visiting the Mesa Lab. So I would recommend going to that website. So they go to syed.ucar.edu and then click on the Visit NCAR tab, which has information about the exhibits, field trip programs, tours, doing something on your own. You can download the tour app from there. And from there, there's also information. There's a recorded number that gives information about visiting. And there's also a phone number that you can use to sign up for a tour. Is there anything we missed? Uh, so we mentioned before that we have um, regular tours. I said that you could sign up for a large group tour, but we also, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday that's not a holiday, we have a free tour from 12 to 1, and you just show up. You don't have to sign up. And, of course, you can find all of that contact information and resources in the show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. That's it for show number 2017. 
Next week on Eyes on Success, in honor of Earth Day, we will be reprising a show from about a year and a half ago in which we talked about the accessibility of the United States National Parks. The National Park Service has over 400 sites that are visited by over 300 million people each year. They strive to make these sites as accessible as possible for everyone. And we will talk with Ray Bloomer, their accessibility specialist for accessibility support programs, about the NPS and how their sites can be enjoyed by everybody. So join us next week for that episode. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy, and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. You can access the full archive of previous shows, subscribe to the podcast, and much more by going to our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net. If you have questions about anything you've heard on the show or have suggestions for future shows, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.